This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is another Daniel, uh, Daniel Summers. Uh, He's a practicing pediatrician in the Boston area. He's also a regular contributing columnist to Slate's Outward section, where he writes about health and medical topics that affect the LGBTQ community. Daniel, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really, really thrilled to be with you today. I am too. This is so great. I have never had anyone uh, on the podcast before who shared my name uh, or my employer. Um, So it's (laughs) kind of a fun little convergence. I've got to congratulate you on your incredibly excellent name choice. I was beyond thrilled when it was revealed. So um, in mutual Danielness, I celebrate uh, doing this with you today. Thank you so much. Um, I remember, you know, you were one of the first people uh, that I that I didn't already like personally know who I had talked to about like contemplating transitioning. Um, and so it was really mean, meaningful also because then I also just kind of forgot that you were named Daniel. I've been thinking about that name for a while. And then when I announced it, I was like, oh, and I know another Daniel. This is so great. I was I was completely over the moon. So uh, I am thrilled to uh, to have you join the the Daniels worldwide. Ah, um, this is so wonderful. <laughs> and I also just want to uh, apologize in advance. My voice has just started cracking every once in a while. So there's a real chance that I'm going to have just like a seventh grade moment at some point uh, as we're on the air together. Having had uh, no shortage of those moments myself, I will abide. Awesome. Okay. Well, then uh, why don't you go ahead and read our first letter? Sure. Uh, This is, how do I help my depressed dad? Dear Prudence, I'm nearing the end of my rope when it comes to my father. I'm a college sophomore home for the summer, and I'm picking up on a lot of tensions and disturbing emotional trends within my usually close family. My father has always been a very anxious person, but now it seems to have pervaded every aspect of his life. He doesn't seem to find enjoyment in anything anymore, and he's miserable all the time. Also, he has a lot of anger right below the surface. Recently, the recycling bin was full and something on the top slid out onto the ground. When he saw this, he blew up at me, demanding loudly that I, quote, act like an expletive and, quote, show some expletive respect. He also doesn't seem to see a problem with yelling at me and my mom, since he argues that it's okay and not scary, since we know he would never physically hurt us. As a man, I think he just doesn't understand the visceral fight-or-flight terror a woman feels when a man is shouting at her, especially a small woman. It's like his depression just sucks the joy out of any room he's in. He doesn't even like touching us anymore. When we tried to talk with him about it, he's been dismissive and said, quote, we both had problems too, but he wasn't going to drag us through the mud. When I was a freshman in high school, I became extremely depressed and anxious to the point where I could barely sleep at night, barely drag myself out of bed in the morning, and dreaded school. That year, I saw a psychiatrist, went on medication, began both individual and group therapy, and slowly got better. I'm not cured. And I'm still on medication, but I did a lot of things that were really scary to me, primarily because I saw how my condition was affecting the people around me, and I wanted to get better for them, not just for me. And it feels like a slap in the face that my dad isn't willing to take the same steps. It really hurts that he doesn't seem to think we're important enough to get better for. He also refuses to take medication, which is also painful, since my brother and I are on antidepressants. This is something that's constantly on my mind. It is so frustrating because I feel that we're talking less and less because I'm afraid of starting a conversation with him since there's a good chance he'll react with annoyance, exasperation, or anger. I remember how he would patiently play pretend with me for hours when I was a small child 
or read to me or help me with my music lessons. He took me to my first concert to see the same band he saw at his first concert in 1985. We liked the same movies, books, music, and comics. We used to watch The Lord of the Rings and learn the lines by heart. Now all he does is work and play video games. Sometimes it doesn't even seem like the same guy anymore. I also feel incredibly guilty because I know, since I'm away at school, that I don't have to deal with him all the time, but my mom and my brother do. My mom recently told me that she's afraid that their relationship will eventually turn into them being roommates. I feel horrible for her because she has a high-stress job and then comes home to my dad, who is emotionally checked out at best, and my brother, who is 14 and, in the family tradition, has serious anxiety problems and is unequipped to support her emotionally. I just feel like she has the world on her shoulders and I don't know how to help. It's so frustrating that I feel like I know exactly what dad needs to get better, but he doesn't seem to care and I just can't do it for him. I don't know what to do anymore. I'm sick of feeling scared and sad and nervous and tense in my own home. My family is the most important thing in the world to me. I don't have many friends. I'd do anything to make him get the help that he needs. Oh, Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. And this letter was originally a lot longer. There was just a lot going on. Um, And I kind of wanted to save it for this one, too, in part because I feel like so often... um, Uh, when somebody writes in to talk about depression, I will say something along the lines of get help. Maybe I will use the word therapy or medical attention, but I'll kind of keep it general. And Mm -hmm. not that like you have to, as a doctor, say here is exactly what this person should do. But um, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot going on here. And one thing that felt really important to separate was uh, the letter writer's father's depression from the way that he expresses his anger. Yeah. Um, Because I think, uh, it seems like one of the things that is being conflated here is this idea that because he's depressed and not interested in the things that he used to be um, and doesn't and it seems to have kind of an attitude of hopelessness about the ability um, for anything to change, um, that that is why he is also lashing out, um, speaking harshly, um, swearing at the kids. And and I don't think that that is um, depression. Lots of people are depressed and never do that. That's an anger management issue. That's yeah. a cruelty issue. Um, and that's not okay and not justified by the fact that he has depression. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I, I completely agree with you. Um, there are at least two very distinct issues here. And um, no matter what help he ends up getting, um, hopefully he does get help, but no matter what that help ends up looking like, there's a separate issue right now, which is that he is... Um, expressing whatever is going inside in deeply inappropriate and harmful ways to his loved ones. And so there's one thing that I think the letter writer maybe has some ability to to do, but there's a lot that I think, unfortunately, is is really uh, entirely rests upon the father's initiative or investment in his own improvement. Um, this is a conversation I have in my own practice so many times. I have it with parents and I have it with some of my older patients uh, directly. The The only real um, hope that a person can can have for, for changing, for improvement is if they themselves are invested in it. Um, mm-hmm. It's extremely difficult to, to say to parents sometimes when they're um, really unhappy with a direction that their children's lives are taking. But a, a lot of the time, uh, you know, there's only so much that you can do if the if the person themselves is not interested in in making the change that they need. Right, and and I think too, one thing letter writer that might be helpful is to reread your own letter um, in terms of separating out the the anger, the aggression um, from the rest of it, which is. As you yourself know, you were depressed in high school, right? Like you were incredibly depressed and anxious. It was difficult to function. You couldn't sleep. Um, You dreaded uh, just sort of like the daily routine. And yet you don't say that you also um, made the people around you feel physically unsafe. So Mm -hmm. there's a clue right there that um, these these two things are not the same. Being depressed does not mean that you are going to... um, like yell at, curse at, unsettle um, uh, the people around you. So those those are really different things. And just the fact that your father said, um, it's not scary because you know I would never hurt you. If you are in the position of saying to a family member, you know I would never hurt you, that's not normal. You know, that's not something you say when no one feels like hurt might be imminent, right? Like mm-hmm. 
if you are physically safe with a family member, you never say to one another, by the way, you know I would never physically hurt you. Um, the reason that he said that is because that's in some way kind of on the table and you're all sort of aware that that's a possibility. And that's, you know, that's worrying. That's dangerous. That's not normal. That's not typical depressive behavior. So don't, you know, you can feel a lot of empathy for the suffering that your father is experiencing without saying, ah, that's because he's depressed. Um, that's not because he's depressed. That's separate. That's not okay. Um, and you have every right to set really clear boundaries around that and not feel like you are somehow not supporting a person with depression. Whether or not the father ends up getting the help that he needs for the depression, um, the one thing I think that the letter writer has some capacity to do is support his mother um, and and uh, try as best he can to be a resource for her and a support for her. Um, I certainly understand the the feeling of, of frustration that being separate from the family, I I understand the feeling of guilt, but, you know, he's got to to live his own life. He's got to be out there and, and go to college and and do what's next in his own, you know, his own path. So, um, but insofar as he can support his mom and help her if she doesn't feel safe to get to a place where she can be, that's one thing where he maybe can 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 be helpful to the people he loves. But as far as whether his, his father gets help, unfortunately, that the, the, the onus on in that case, just really does rest so very much on the father himself. And, and you know, I'm just aware, like, not to be overly hard on the letter writer's mother, but um, it's not appropriate for her to be going to her 20-year-old child and saying, yeah. you know, here are all my fears for my marriage. Or yep. that the 14-year-old brother um, is being described as unequipped to support her emotionally. Um, yep. That's not a 14-year-old's job. I mean, of course, you should love and care for your mother. It's not like your parents can never share any issues that they're having with their children. But a 14, you know, the mother's coping strategies right now are not good if her children are feeling this much pressure. And, and letter writer, you say that you don't have many friends. And, and one thing that I worry for you is that you are thinking that if you um, don't come home for the summer— if you do spend time with friends, if you do really engage in your college community and develop your own separate life, that you are abandoning your mother, that you are responsible for her isolation, that you are responsible for your younger brother's isolation. Um, and, and that's just not true. Um, and I'm not saying like you have to cut off your family because they're going through this. But one thing that you need to do is to continue to focus on your own life. Um, and that is not unhelpful uh, or avoiding the problem if you try to make friends um, or if you uh, focus on your college career and find another place to stay for the summer. Um, your job is not to be your mother's primary source of support. You can absolutely help and support her, but that should primarily come through reflecting to like, mom, you say you're afraid that your marriage with dad is falling apart. You know, I love you and I'm so sorry about that. I really encourage you to see a therapist about this, um, to talk to your friends about this, to figure out whether or not this marriage is working for you um, because, uh, you know, I, I can't I can't do that for you. Um, and not in a harsh way, not like, hey, mom, like figure this out tomorrow and I never want to hear about it again. But but to really make it clear that um, that's a serious way to feel. And that she should take that seriously by getting the help and support that she needs from appropriate sources. I couldn't agree more. I, I completely agree with everything that you've said. And and the letter writer, I don't think is going to be able to be a resource or help to anyone if he's not doing the things he needs to do to to take care of himself and to live the life that that he has in front of him. So um, I, I completely agree that being her soul or or significant um, emotional support is just not an appropriate or healthy uh, parent-child relationship, even if he is an adult child. Right. So I, I would say kind of in order of uh, importance, number one, take care of yourself. Um, if, you know, the, the, the summer's just starting, if you need to spend a lot of nights at a friend's house, um, do that. Take that space. Do what you need to do um, to make sure that you are not constantly feeling tense and unsafe. Um and then uh, in addition, you know, if your father is totally dead set against getting any help, encourage your mother to get help. Really, again, not like make it your job to make sure that she does, but really encourage her. Hey, even if dad doesn't take any of these steps, um, you can um, and you can get the help that you need to figure out what you need in order to be safe and happy. 
Um, and then when it comes to, you know, I know it kind of feels like talking to your father's like talking to a brick wall. Um, but certainly when it comes to things like cursing at you, um, or, or blowing up at you in a way that makes you worry he's going to escalate physically to say, you know, dad, I, I, I will not be around you if you're going to talk to me like this. I'm going to go, um, and to leave and to go somewhere safe. Um, and to really prioritize your own safety. And if his response to that is to di- diminish your feelings or like, that's outrageous. Of course, I would never hurt you. Um, you know, you don't need to get drawn into an argument there. You just need to say, that's not how I speak to other people. And that's not how you can speak to me. Um, and uh, I'm I'm going to separate myself from this situation if I have to. Um, and, and to, you know, reach out to anyone you can. If there's a counselor at school, I know you said you don't feel like you have many friends. Um, but if there's anybody that you know from high school, um, even like a, a counselor from your high school or a teacher that you trust from high school, anybody that you can reach out to and ask for support right now, do it because you deserve it. Even if your dad doesn't and even if your mom doesn't, you can and you deserve that kind of help. I, again, I I simply co-sign everything that you said. <laughs> Um, you know, I, uh, the, the primary responsibility the letter writer has is, is to his own well-being. Yeah. And he should certainly never remain in a situation where he feels menaced. Um, and uh, like you said earlier, people who aren't a threat to the safety of other people don't need to stipulate that. So right. um, when, that, when that, um, that kind of dynamic comes up, you know, you can love your father, but still recognize that you need to, to be in a, a place that's safe for yourself. Yeah. And so you can always hope, especially given that he did not always used to be this way, you can always hope um, that someday his level of willingness will change. Um, and you can encourage that. But in the meantime, you, I think the question should be not how do I make sure that my dad gets the help that he needs, but if my dad never chooses to, what will mm-hmm. I do to make sure that I am safe and okay? Yeah. Because um, that's what you deserve. And good luck. Precisely. All right. This next letter, the subject line is, is cheating ever Okay. Which, uh, by the way, I love when people ask me that as if I'm, <laughs> like, like I'm the one who who can hand out passes. Like, if I say it's okay, it's okay. Like, it's I don't like know, a people dispensation. Totally, I love that. It feels. I feel like Boniface. Boniface. <laughs> I've actually only ever seen the name written. I've, I'm realizing, and I've never heard it pronounced. And I don't know if it's Boniface or Boniface. I'm gonna go with Boniface. It sounds posher. So let's go. With it Boniface. does sound more Latin-y. Um, yes. So I'm gonna go with that. But uh, here we go, dear Prudence. I'm a transsexual man. I transitioned years ago and I'm currently engaged to a wonderful straight woman. Next month, I will be undergoing reconstructive surgery, but for the first time, I'm experiencing fantasies about being with a man, specifically being penetrated by one. I'm not generally attracted to men, and I'm just curious about knowing what it would feel like. My fiancé and I are monogamous. We're also very normal people. I would never be able to look her in the eye if she knew that I had been submissive in that way. I've viewed a gay hookup site and messaged a few guys who are interested in a safe one-time encounter. Is it wrong to partake? It would be an anonymous experiment with no risk to my fiancé. I think I will regret not acting, but there's no way I can tell my fiancé about this and continue our relationship. So there's a lot here. Yeah. Um, I would like to dispense right at the outset with the notion that it's an anonymous experiment with no risk to my fiancé. Um, that's that's a happy story to believe, mm-hmm. but... Uh, no, no, no. If yeah. you go through with this, you, you may believe that there's no risk or you're trying to mitigate the risk, but there's still going to be some risk. There are, there are things that could happen that, um, you may not think pose a risk, but they do. So you're putting your fiance at risk if you choose to per, to partake in this. Right. Yeah. That is a fantasy, um, that you believe because you wish it were the truth. Uh, that is not the actual truth. The thing that jumped out the most at me, uh, which I'm, I'm sure also jumps out at you was the idea of, uh, your normal people, uh, and for some reason, people who wish to be penetrated by men, uh, aren't normal. Um, or it's only normal if you're a straight woman. Um, and that you would never be able to look her in the eye, not because you cheated on her, um, but because you view uh, being penetrated as inherently submissive, which is just some old timey nonsense. Yeah, I, I was. There's a lot in that very normal people phrase. Um, like I'm gay as the day is long, and mm-hmm. um, somehow managed to consider myself normal. Um, and uh, there's there is something very curious about the idea that. Um, participating in the kind of sex that you enjoy 
is inherently submissive, even if it is to be on the receiving end of, of penetration. Right, so, that's like very um, ancient Rome. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really quite antiquated. Um, and, you know, whatever, whatever um, this guy decides, um, you know, there's, there's um, something that I think going on about, uh, and maybe there's something about the submissiveness that, that is appealing to him, but there's nothing inherently submissive about claiming the sex life that you want for yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, it feels goofy to have to say this, but yeah, friends, it's 2018. Um, You can be penetrated and not submissive in the least. It's just an action. It's just, you know, skin on skin. There's lots of different ways uh, of arranging uh, your body with another person's body. Um, And it does not have to be inherently submissive uh, unless that is something that you would like to add to the equation. Um, So, uh, you know, I would encourage you to maybe investigate some of the uh, assumptions and hangups you have about what role someone plays during sex um, and what that says about their relative levels of submissiveness. I just think that's really, really misguided. Um, yeah. And I just think it's messed up that you think the problem would be looking your partner in the eye after having been penetrated by a guy rather than having cheated on her when you know that you're in a monogamous relationship and it would hurt her. The, I this line. I think I will regret not acting. Well, that may be true. Yeah, um, adult life you, is full of complicated choices. You you are going to have to accept the element of regret that may come with nonetheless doing the right thing. Um, there are a great many life choices that we make that involve an element of regret, and um, we nonetheless make them, and entailed in being in a monogamous relationship, uh, one that you feel wouldn't tolerate the openness that would allow you to experience this thing that you're curious about, is accepting that you just don't get to do all the things that you might otherwise choose. That's that's the, the, the agreement and the decision that you make when you're in a monogamous relationship. Yeah. And that if you don't feel, you know, um, able to say to your partner, hey, there's this really one-off sex act I would like to perform um, that uh, would not have anything to do with our sort of like long-term commitment to one another and which I I don't feel like I could engage in with you. Um, Can we talk about, uh, you know, a temporary hall pass? Um, If you're not willing to have that conversation, then I don't think it's fair or kind or honest to um, do it behind her back. Um, Either have the conversation and be willing for her to say no and you've hurt my feelings or mm-hmm. um, uh, I have some feelings about it, but I'm willing to talk about it. Or actually, I think that sounds great. What a fun, sexy time for us. Um, you know, you, you got to be willing to ask for the things that you want um, when it comes to a partner. And if you're afraid that they're going to say no, um, the correct response, the right response, the loving response is not to say, well, I'll just lie about it. And, you you know, you say, is it going to be wrong to cheat? You're kind of already heading down that path, my friend. Like, I, I have a feeling if she were, uh, for example, to, you know, I hear from people all the time who are like, my partner left a laptop open or I looked at their phone and I saw this thing come up. You say that, like, there's no way she would find out, be super anonymous, no risk. It is not impossible that she would find a message and learn about it now or in the future. And that would be a whole lot worse than being honest enough front with her now. Yeah. There's something that I sort of find kind of difficult to square in that he doesn't seem super duper motivated by this. It seems just sort of a a faint curiosity. He doesn't express overall attraction to men, Mm -hmm. but that's just like the sort of curiosity that he wants to, to explore and itchy wants to scratch a bit. I mean, it's hardly a compelling moral argument to pursue something that seems so superficial. I mean, if it's something that he really wants to do, then I'm not saying it's not worth talking about, but you can't possibly um, like expect a uh, again your your dispensation here um, for something that is inherently dishonest and um, is outside of the confines of the relationship they have. Yeah, I, I I am also curious. It sounds like he has a lot of really 
like hard and fast ideas about what role he wants to play in a sexual relationship and his relationship to things about penetration and submission. And either, you know, you're just being really flippant about your partner's feelings and you're like, yeah, I'm willing to do this thing that I know she'd end our relationship over, but I'm mildly curious, so it's worth it to me. Or, um, you know, it it's kind of more compelling than you want to let on and you do have some thoughts and feelings um, about maybe your relationship to the like gender roles in your relationship and the idea of presumably being never submissive with your partner. Um, and so, you know, maybe ask yourself some questions there. Would it be, why, why are you in a relationship where you would not be able to look her in the eye if you experienced a moment or an, a, like a, 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 a sexually submissive moment? Why is your relationship predicated not just on monogamy, but on your never articulating a desire to experience some form of submission? Like, that seems very rigid and like maybe a recipe to set that sort of thing up as forbidden fruit, which you disavow with her, but then grow more and more interested in separately. And that's, you know, a recipe for feeling alienated from your partner. I, I think that this this guy just really needs to examine um, what it is that he considers normal, mm-hmm. um, what kind of normal it is that he's uh, invested in trying to maintain um, what's wrong with not being normal? Yeah. Um, and uh, and what it is that he expects to come of what he thinks is going to be a one-off, but could be a much bigger kettle of fish than than he's letting on. Yeah, this is one where I would love to hear an update in a couple of months. Uh, I would love to know what this journey of self-discovery might end up looking like for this letter writer. So please, um, whatever you do or don't end up doing or talking about or thinking about, uh, let us know how that's working for you. I'm, I'm I'd love to curious. know. I'm dying. Yeah, yeah. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Homophobia at work. Dear Prudence, I recently accepted a job at a local fast food restaurant. They're fairly understaffed, so it can be difficult, but they pay me above minimum wage and I get many shifts. There's also a lot of gay jokes about my coworker who is bisexual. I'm a gay woman, and while he may be okay with some of the jokes, some of them make me really uncomfortable, especially when slurs are used. I don't think I can address this in a way that doesn't give me a bad reputation at work. I don't really know how to approach this. Is it okay to keep looking for different jobs just in case something more appropriate comes up? Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, it is. It is entirely okay to keep looking for different jobs. Um, I would commend you to do that with all due haste. Yeah. And I think one other suggestion that I would have, because it sounds like it does not sound like you feel like, man, if I go to a supervisor um, and say I'm troubled by this, I want people to stop making uh, homophobic jokes and comments at work, that they, they will actually make that happen and that you would in fact fear like some blowback or retribution. So I think, yes. Look for other work. And then in the meantime, one possibility is to say something that does not reveal how personally invested you are in it, um, but that makes it clear that you think it's dull. Because, um, again, I, my my theory is these are the kind of people where if you said, like, can we please stop? I really don't like this. This hurts me. They would probably respond with, like, oh, you're so sensitive and then derive greater joy from saying those things to get a rise out of you. Um which sucks. And I wish very much that that wasn't the case. But it may be possible um, to say something more along the lines of just like, guys, come on, really? Like, these jokes are really boring. Um, And and I kind of hate advocating like a bending over backwards to sort of preempt the likeliest response. Um, I it it does feel 
it, it's not advice I feel thrilled about giving, but I do think um, you could say something along those lines in a way that makes it clear that you just think the jokes are boring, uninteresting, repetitive, and kind of makes them feel bad, like, oh, God, I'm not that funny, rather than, ooh, here's someone who I know is sensitive, and now I know how to needle them. You know, it's easy for me to think of all kinds of advice to give, but that don't, that, that don't um, acknowledge the reality of the letter writer, which is that um, she may not have a whole heck of a lot of options. And so it's really important for her to maintain this employment. And so I, I, you know, as much as I would love for her to feel empowered to advocate for a more, you know, tolerant work environment per se, um, that just may not be tenable for her. And so insofar as she really does have to maintain as good a working environment as she can, um, the one other thing that I would say is, you know, she could certainly do her best to support her bisexual coworker. Um, you know, it's not clear to me, um, how okay he really is with those jokes and which ones are the sum that he's okay with and, and what happens when they make jokes that aren't okay with him. You know, she can be, she can be somebody he can turn to, I guess, as, as, as an emotional support in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, if she feels like she currently doesn't have a lot of other options um, that she has to, to, to play it very carefully. And I liked the idea of the, the, these jokes are boring or like, like 1984 called and they want their jokes back. Um, Because that's so played out. There's really, there's no humor left to be mined in, in gayness. Like I'm just not that funny. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, I, I like that tack as a, as a possible way of trying to, to short circuit the humor that they're getting out of this. But I also totally agree with the idea that making herself look like an additional target um, may be counterproductive. Yeah, but I, I think that's great, too, to check in. Because when I first read this, I my assumption was he, she thinks that he's OK with it because he seems fine with it. But then I realized that it, she's actually just like, I don't know how he feels about it, in which case I think it would be kind and possibly helpful to do a private check in with him and just say, like, hey, are you OK Like with all of this? Because it seems shitty. Um, is, you know, especially if he's the target of those jokes, um, just checking in and say, is there anything that I can do that would help? And if he's like, I just want to ignore it or it's fine, that's one thing. But if he's like, I'd actually really appreciate it, um, if you can check in with me during those moments or if you can say something, even if it's, um, not like, hey, I'm a lesbian, I, this sucks, which again, like you have every right to do, right? Like you have the right, well, you should have the right to have workplace protections in place on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, But we're not always there yet. And so I think checking in with him, figuring out, since he is the target of these and you are not, if there's any way that you can be specifically useful to him, um, uh, taking the sort of option of like, this is dumb and played out, you guys knock it off. Um, And then also looking for another job um, are probably going to be the three things that will help you the most. And I'm also really sorry. It really, really sucks, especially when you need the work um, and it pays more than minimum wage. Um, that's a really hard position to be in, and I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I really do feel bad that she doesn't likely have recourse to being able to just stand up for what is right in and of itself. But um, you know, again, her reality may not admit the the possibility of of standing up on those grounds. And so, whatever she can do to take care of herself, um, she absolutely, uh, I think, should continue to pursue it. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, the theme of today is so much to do with just like gender and family and family roles and what to do with our feelings, Um, because this next letter just has all that and then some and you get to read it. Subject, deeply ashamed about gender disappointment. Dear Prudence, I am a very liberal feminist, outspoken LGBTQI ally and teacher at at an elementary school. My family is wonderfully supportive and loving. However, I have a secret that breaks my heart. I have always wanted sons. As a child, I craved brothers and dreamed of having my own sons. However, I have three young daughters. I love them dearly, but I feel an empty space in my heart for my future sons. I cry about it in the shower. I get insanely jealous of my friends when they find out that they're having boys. I gravitate towards the boys in my class. I have severe, I had severe prenatal depression when I found out that my two babies were girls, then severe postnatal depression. 
I still dream of having a big batch of boys. We plan on having five or six kids, as is normal in our rural community. But this dream feels further and further away. We are going to start trying for our fourth child in a few months. I'm terrified. Obviously, I can't talk to anyone about this. I have an appointment to see a therapist. I feel so ashamed and guilty. My husband doesn't have a preference, nor do my daughters. It's just me. What can I do to make myself get over this? Oh, letter writer. Oh, I just, I have so much more. Um, th- there's so much more you can do with someone, like, who is willing to just say, this is how I feel. I'm ashamed of it. It's not what I want to drive my behavior, but I need to figure out a way to deal with it. Like, in a way that the last letter writer, uh, not not that letter writer, but their husband, like, totally doesn't acknowledge, right? Like, this person does not want to feel this way. Um, this person does not want to treat their daughters badly to deal with uh, the way that they feel about not having a son. Um, and they're reaching out for help. And that's just like, man, you can do so much with that. Like, the problem is not having a feeling that goes against the way that you want to see the world or the way that you want to treat people. The problem is what you do with those feelings. So just well done for reaching out and for saying, I don't want this feeling to be what dictates my life. How do I get help? I want this letter writer to be so much more gentle with herself. Um, I, I I think that she's being far, far too too judgmental of her own feelings. You can acknowledge that you have a feeling without it being an indictment of your character. Right. Um, and I, I this this line, you know, I obviously I can't talk to anyone about this. I I feel like this seems much bigger from the inside as far as the taboo of talking about it um, than it would be for somebody that she might theoretically turn to. Um, if not her husband, then I, I think that once she has a chance to say this to somebody, it will be, seem much more right-sized when she she just gets it out in the air. I also wonder, she says that she has three young daughters and that she had severe postnatal depression Mm -hmm. um and i'm just wondering could this be connected to that is she getting adequate treatment for her possibly still lingering postnatal depression i don't really know anything about how long that can last or or what lingering effects that can have and i'm just wondering if that could be a part of it well i do notice that she says that she has an appointment to see a therapist which makes me wonder what she what therapy she did get or if she did get therapy like you say for the depression she's already experienced, it doesn't sound, or I don't get the sense that this is an appointment with a pre-existing uh, therapist that she had. I, I think that it seems like it's a new thing for her. Um, and so it, I do wonder if she's had the the care for her own mental health needs up until now that really would have helped her um, enjoy parenting in a way that it sounds like she had a difficult time doing. Yeah, and I don't know if there's like, particular forms of like medication that can be helpful with postnatal depression. But I hope in addition to talk therapy, that that is something she can talk to her doctor about. Because this this does sound, you know, crying about it in the shower, um, finding yourself like getting really, really jealous of your friends who have boys. That's, you know, that's affecting your ability to function, um, gravitating towards the boys in your class. Like that's bleeding out into your life outside of your family. And that just sounds severe enough that I think you, you know, you say, I can't talk about this. I think you have to talk about this. Um, I think if you don't talk about this, you will um, not get the help that you so clearly need. It's it's pervading every element of her life, it sounds like. Right. And as far as the depression itself is concerned, you know, there absolutely are um, therapies that can really be helpful. There, there can be medications if, if ultimately that ends up being the right decision for her. Um, but what's obvious is that this is eroding her quality of life pretty much across the board. It doesn't sound like she has any uh, aspect of her life that, that this doesn't have some negative impact on. Yeah. Um, so, so talking about this, I think, is no longer going to be, or, or, or rather, not talking about this is no longer going to present itself as an option. She, she really does need to find a way of getting this out there. Yeah, and I think you know, you say that you always wanted sons, and that's you know, kind of within the realm of um, 
for lack of a better word, like normal human feelings. Um, but the prenatal depression that was connected to something you already felt, um, I, I, I wonder if that is part of why this feels so big now. You, you don't say that before you had children, you would like lay awake at night panicking at the prospect of having girls. So this went from being a preference that you had that felt maybe within the sort of um, normative, um, not impeding your ability to function realm of feelings you can have about children and then you had prenatal and postnatal depression and that just like exploded how it felt for you um and so i just really think that this may have been something that was you know on a scale of one to ten like a four or a five and now sounds like it's at a nine or a ten and at least some of that may be you know, lingering um, postnatal depression that really merits a lot of help and support um, so that you can kind of deal with the feelings underneath the depression. One thing about this that I, I've been thinking about a lot when I first read this letter is that you can look at the way that um, society genders different things you get to do with one kind of child versus another, wish that it were otherwise, and still accept that you dwell within that society. And still say, you know, there are some things that that are traditionally done by boys that um, I've always sort of dreamed of doing with a son and want to provide those opportunities for your daughters and work to provide those opportunities for your daughters and still acknowledge that you exist within a society that has these gendered roles and allow yourself to experience the kinds of dreams that you've always had without feeling like you're a despicable human being for feeling it. You can you know, feel like it's not equitable, you can work to make it more equitable, but you can still acknowledge how you were socialized to have those expectations anyway, and absolve yourself of this huge amount of, of shame and guilt that you've clearly internalized. Yeah. And and I think, especially right now, given that you have experienced multiple cases of pre and postnatal depression, not that that means that you are not entitled to have, you know, as many children as you want, but, you know, you say that you're terrified at the idea of trying to start for a fourth child and that you are like gravitating towards the boys in your class. And I'm just really, one of my concerns right now is, are you going to be okay if you get pregnant again with the level of support you currently have? Um, and and how's your relationship with your daughters? Like, is this bleeding through into the way that you are treating them? And if you were to have a son and not receive more treatment, more therapeutic and possibly medical attention for this, um, would would you end up treating your children in such a way that your daughters would grow up and say, I always knew my mom wanted a boy, and as soon as she got one, it was real clear um, who she loved the most. I don't want that um, for you or for your children. So That was a big worry of mine, too. Yeah, yeah. And and just I, I also worry about the girls in your class. Like, um, again, you're already beating yourself up a lot. I don't want to um, add to that. But that's part of why I think it's so important to address this both for your own sake and for your ability to be a really good teacher. Um, I want the girls in your class um, to not suffer academically as a result of this deeply painful personal problem that you're having. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're a monster. Um, it means that you need and deserve help. And so I think you definitely need to talk to this therapist. You definitely need to talk to your doctor. And you definitely need to talk to your husband. I know that that feels like something you can't say to him, um, but you need to. Because if you start trying for another child with this level of distress, anxiety, um, and you know, gender-based resentment, whether that child ends up being a boy or a girl, um, you're going to be in a really difficult position and you're not going to have any help or support. And that's not going to be good for you or your children. Um, so I, I think, again, this is not like don't ever have a child, um, just spend the rest of your life in therapy. But you need to tell your husband, um, as it stands right now, I'm not ready to start trying for a child in a couple of months. I need to address this um, for my well-being, for the well-being of the students in my class, for the well-being of our children and the well-being of our marriage. Um, and share with him both the feelings you're dealing with and the shame you're feeling around them. Um, because I just I just think if you're honest with him about that and you also share how much this makes you distressed and afraid, um, he's going to meet you with love and compassion and he's going to want to help. I completely, again, agree with with everything that you've said and and I can sort of see the letter writers like white knuckles from here at how she's trying so hard to keep this inside and contain it. Mm -hmm. Um, but sooner or later, it's just not going to be containable. And, um, I, I really do worry about the dynamics that already exist 
uh, within her family and within the classroom. And as you say, no matter what kind uh, of family she may have having in the future, it's going to end up having in the future. It, it may, um, it's going to have complications one way or the, or the other. Uh, hopefully getting all of this out in the letter was, and then just sort of seeing it in black and white was a first step in letting letting herself communicate to other people about it more because sooner or later it's no longer going to be an option to not do so. Yeah. And I think just the most important thing that I want to communicate to this letter writer is the answer to this problem is not to privately beat yourself up. You will not be able to hate yourself out of this problem. So, you know, I, I know that there's that voice right now that's saying the best thing I can do is keep this a secret because if anyone knew, they'd be so ashamed and disappointed. Um, so I'm just going to privately hate myself and and maybe eventually that will make this go away. That does not work. Um, and it's already, as you know, it's already showing up in the way that you treat the boys in your class. Um, so there's already ways in which you are unable to keep this to yourself. So there's already ways in which you are communicating this to the world around you. I think it will feel better to talk about it openly and honestly. Now, that does not mean like as you tuck your daughters into bed at night, like pouring out your heart and confessing this to them. Um, this doesn't mean, you know, um, flippantly saying to your husband, um, I prefer boys. Um, this means having that serious, difficult, painful, vulnerable conversation um, and asking for help because you deserve it um, and you need it. And the children in your life who trust you as an authority figure and as a parent and as a teacher, they need it. Um, you know, don't hate yourself so much that you think you don't deserve to take action because that will only result in um, just the worst case scenario. Um, and you will not always feel this way. There's help for this. Um, you will be able to get the help that you need. And there will come a day when you are not crying in the shower all the time, um, unable to talk to your friends who have boys. Um, you, you will be able to get the help that you need. If I could just say one thing to the letter writer in addition to what you said is that I, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a woman myself, but I, I just can't imagine a friend of the letter writer responding with anything other than compassion to hearing what she's going through. This is not, this is not, I think as, as grievous, um, a secret to hold is that it must feel like for her. Um, and I, 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 if a friend of mine were to come to me with, you know, anything that seems similar to this kind of feeling, I can't imagine wanting to do anything other than, than be a support for them. So, um, I, I would hope that she would, again, like, lessen the amount of castigating herself that she's doing. And and again, I think that once this is out, it's going to seem substantially smaller. Um, I, I can't say it's going to seem, susp- sus- sorry, substantially smaller because I, I don't know how it'll feel, but it, I think it may help right size how, how grievous this seems as a sort of sin to her to have somebody talk to her with it, uh, about it. Yeah. And good luck. All right. This last question is about work, which is great because we've had some heavy family stuff and it's kind of nice to um, turn to a different uh, avenue for problems. But the subject line is Grinch at work. Dear Prudence, this spring, my boss brought on a new hire, Ruth, to the team. Ruth was 20 plus years older than everyone else on our level and was a last minute hire to fill a spot that was difficult to hire for. She had trouble fitting in. I quickly grew frustrated at constantly spending my time re-explaining things to her, catching her up on technology, walking her step-by-step through the same processes over and over again, etc. She was always kind to me, but I was less than kind about her. I dreaded when she asked me questions, and I spoke to my team members about my confusion at Ruth having been hired in the first place. Fast forward three months, we just found out that Ruth has a degenerative neurological illness that makes it extremely hard for her to learn and retain new material, adapt to new social situations, and perform her job duties. There is no cure, and she just resigned to focus on her health. I feel awful about my behavior. I have no way of knowing which annoyances were directly linked to her illness or not, and I never said anything to her directly, but I still feel bad. Am I the worst person ever? What do I do to make this right? Well, I think it's pretty clear that she may have been, um, the letter writer, rather, may have been unkind about Ruth, or perceive themselves to having to having been unkind, but wasn't unkind to Ruth, which I think is an important distinction to make as far as like how how bad she should feel about um, 
the interaction that she had with uh, with Ruth, and I don't know why I'm assuming that the letter writer is a woman, but I keep saying she. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't think they're the worst person ever um, because it's not clear to me if there were any interactions at all with Ruth that were innately unkind. I think it's important for them to re-examine their interactions with Ruth. And if there were uh, moments of genuine unkindness to, to be honest with themselves uh, about that and to acknowledge that. Um, But if the, the things that they're perceiving as unkind were sort of standard workaday griping with other colleagues about things that were frustrating that may not necessarily represent unkindness. Right. Because there's a big difference between, you know, privately saying to your coworkers, you know, I just walked Ruth through the same process for the fifth time. I'm frustrated and it's unclear to me if she's going to be able to fulfill the duties she was hired to perform. Or, you know, if you were sending around like, you know, private emails being like, look at what this idiot Ruth did again today. Like there's a spectrum of complaining at work um, and it it sounds to me based on what is in this letter, that the letter writer is being a little bit hard on themselves, mostly for feeling uncharitably disposed toward Ruth um, while helping her. Um, So I would say definitely not. You are not the worst person in the world. um, But there may still be some valuable lessons to take away from this um, and uh, to sort of bear in mind that Sometimes when people are unable to um, learn something as quickly as we might um, or when they need more help, that it's always helpful to look for context and to read them in good faith unless we have been given like really strong evidence to the contrary. Um, I think generally speaking, um, if you don't know someone very well, if you don't know someone's situation, um, be curious and be generous um, and, and, and don't immediately go to this person is stupid or this person is not trying as hard as they should be or this person, um, you know, couldn't possibly have any extenuating circumstances. Because I think as you yourself realize that kind of trapped you in a feedback loop of um, Ruth is, you know, a problem. Um, I'm sure Ruth is not doing the most that she can to get better. And so my best outlet is to complain. Um, One thing that you can do is um, reach out to Ruth and express your sympathy um, about her retirement. Um, This is probably a hard time for her. And that doesn't mean you have to go become her new best friend. But just to say, um, you know, something privately about how you really wish her the best. You're so sorry to hear about her condition. Um, You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe send flowers. um, Maybe have a little food delivered to her place. Maybe ask if you can ever be helpful um, in, like, running an errand or two. That would maybe be one way to demonstrate kindness towards someone that you have felt frustrated with in the past. The the one thing that I thought about as far as the what do I do to make this right, I I would just caution the letter writer to um, not go overboard either. Right. um, To feel that they have this now big obligation to go above and beyond for Ruth, because for, it sounds as though this was a relatively short time being colleagues together. And, and, you know, I, it, you don't want to be um, off putting to her right now while she's going through this obviously very difficult period in her life. So I, I completely agree that reaching out to Ruth is entirely appropriate, but follow her cues and um, make yourself available in ways that um, are sensible for both of you. But don't, it's not Ruth's job to ultimately make you feel better about unkindnesses that may or may not have actually even happened. So if Ruth really would just prefer, you know, to say thank you and move on, um, even if you still feel guilty afterward, you, you have to work that through without insisting on being helpful for her in ways that may or may not actually be helpful for her. Right. Yeah. So absolutely like expressing a private like note of sympathy or asking if there's any like little thing you can do to help her out is appropriate. Going to her and kind of, you know, throwing all your feelings at her or trying to become her best friend out of guilt um, or saying like, hey, you didn't know this, but I used to talk about you at the office. None of those would be an appropriate response to your feelings of guilt. Don't do that last thing. Please don't do that last thing. Yeah, it didn't um, sound like that was where the letter writer's going, but I just want to say that because uh, I want to make that really clear. 
yeah, all that will do is make Ruth feel horribly self-conscious about the interactions she had with you and wonder about other interactions with other former co-workers. Do your best to be kind and helpful, but don't view this as an opportunity to to expunge your guilt with confession to her. Right. Um, and then, yeah, you know, in terms of thinking about stuff moving ahead, ask yourself, you know, when I would sometimes privately complain to other people, um, did I keep it brief and work focused um, or was I really indulging in a grievance? Um, and if so, in the future, do I want to do that again? Like, how do I want to deal with frustration or resentment at work? Um is there something else that I could have done? Could I have said to Ruth um, earlier, like, hey, is this helpful for you? Is this working? Um, is there something else that you feel like you're not getting that we can talk to your supervisor about? Um, I think it's often, again, unless you have real reason to think otherwise, to assume that if someone's struggling, it's because they need more help than they're getting, not that they need um, more like um, dismissal or, or anger than they're getting. Um, and, uh, you know, again, there's that's not to say that any time somebody messes up at work or, or displays, um, you know, kind of an inability to, to perform their role that you should automatically um, treat them with kid gloves. But I do think, you know, uh, we all swim in a lot of like ableist ideas. And oftentimes when it comes to like disorders or diseases that uh, like affect um like higher level functions, executive functioning, um, memory, um, oftentimes we just assume it's a matter of willpower and don't take into account other possibilities. And so that might just be helpful in future. Uh, again, when something like this crops up to say, first of all, you know, is it going to be helpful if I complain about this to somebody else? Um, is there a good faith explanation here? Um, is there a way that this person might need something um, that, that I can help them access rather than write them off? Um, and then beyond that, like if you were not, you know, like, constantly out in the hallways, like smack talking Ruth, let yourself off the hook a little. The fact that you would dread when she asked you questions does not make you a bad person. It's okay that you were frustrated by it, even if you also now know um, that there was a really significant reason for it and have a lot of compassion for her. Like, you know, it's not inherently bad to feel frustrated, especially because it sounds like you spoke patiently with her and were helpful. So give yourself credit as well as kind of checking the things that you wish you had done differently. I completely agree, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Um, yeah, let's fight more next time. I, I, I'll do my best to be more contentious. Um, you know, the last note is if there really were moments of unkindness, then when you reach out to Ruth, you you should acknowledge that. So if you can identify interactions where um, looking at things clear, clear-eyed, you feel like you were less kind than you should be, then you can you can acknowledge that gently and, and in an appropriately limited way um, when you reach back out. But make sure that everything is in proportion to any actual unkindness that may really have happened. Right. Yeah. Don't don't really go overboard if you guys were only ever like friendly, but kind of distant at work. You know, keep your reaching out friendly, but collegial rather than um, really, really ramping up the emotional intensity because you feel guilty. That's not where that guilt needs to go. Yeah, that will be nothing but off-putting. Yeah. Well, Daniel, we did it. We did. <laughs> I hope I sounded halfway insightful. You sounded great. I wish that I had um, saved more medical questions for you, although maybe that would have been um, uh, annoying because you already get to answer a lot of medical questions throughout the day. Um. I tell me I'm good, Daniel. Give you me are the Daniel wonder, Danny, you are spectacular. And I was I was braced for medical questions um, and what had sort of begun to populate my mind with with witty phrases about the practice of medicine and was entirely happy to find that there weren't there was no great need for them. Would you like to to, to say any of them now? I mean, I don't want you to, to have to, you know, if you brought a list. No, no. I, once, once I dump the, the memory file from my brain, it's irretrievable. So no, no folksy doctor sayings. Oh no, no folksy doctor sayings. Just uh, I, it, it was nice to to deal with questions um, uh, for for once where I, I don't have to worry about um, anybody contacting the medical director with uh, with an angry um, response to what I've said. Well. I am also glad for you, and I hope that in future, when anyone follows up with the medical board, um, they are a normal amount of angry and not an unreasonable amount of angry. 
from your lips to God's ears. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Have a fabulous rest of the day. It was my pleasure. You do the same, Danny. Okay. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. Remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.